Hear the word of God. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for that sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt... When the, sin with, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. In verse 22, when a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of, of all the things that the Lord, I'm sorry, any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goats and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, for the sin which he has committed is made known to him. He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female, without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. That's all we'll read. This offering today, as we work our way through these opening chapters of Leviticus during this Lenten season, this offering today is obviously the sin offering. Now, when we speak of this sin offering, we realize that all of these offerings which God has established in one way, shape, or form, are related to the fact that he is holy and we are not, that is, related to this fact of sin. Now, we know that the word sin means to miss, that is, to miss a target that one is shooting. So, you miss the bullseye, you, you, you may miss the whole target, but the concept of sin is, is to miss. And what we're missing here when we sin is the very standard of God. Now, we can define that as his, his law. He comes and gives Israel, and even then to us, his commandments, how we are to live in his presence. And we could go as 
basic, if you will, is foundational, is what we call the Ten Commandments. He begins by saying, you should have no other gods before me. That is, I am the only God that you are to serve. And we've discussed it at great length over the years. And I hope, I hope it's beginning, because it's beginning to sink into me, but beginning to sink in that to have no other gods before him means that he is the very one who defines our lives, that we look to no one else to ask the question, who am I? That we go to God and say, who am I? Who have you made me to be? And he defines us. That no philosopher, that not our culture, that, that no book that we read, that no other human being defines us, but rather we go to God for definition. Who am I? And then we go to God and God alone to direct us. Where am I to go? What am I to do? How am I to live? That's, that's what God does. He defines us. He directs us. And then if he's to be our God and the only God, then it is in him that we will find our delight. That we will be joyful in his definition of us and joyful uh, in his direction of us, that nothing would give us more pleasure than to be who he has made us to be and to live as he calls us to live. That's having no other gods before him. And then he says, you should make no graven image of me. That is, if you want to follow me and follow me alone, then God says, you must worship me as I am, not as you want me to be. You don't get to draw a picture of me. You don't get to make me up in your mind as you think I should be. But you must worship me as I really am. So don't make any images of me. Don't walk through this as if to say, well, this is who God is. No, no. The finite can't capture the infinite. And so worship me as I am. And then he says, be careful of my name. And by that, he doesn't simply mean how we use his name, God or Jesus or any of that. Certainly we shouldn't use it inappropriately or blaspheme or curse using his name. But he means, if you are a people who call by my name, then watch how you live. You should live in such a way as, consistent, as is consistent with honoring my name, honoring me and giving me thanks. And then he says, I've set apart a particular day and I've done that so that you can understand that your time is mine, your life is mine. And so six days work, but on the seventh, on that Sabbath day, this holy day, I want you to set it apart for me, and you'll be blessed. Thus we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you know already, we miss that. We don't hit that. That's sin. And then he goes on to say that we're to love each other as we love ourselves. So we're to honor our father and mother. We're to love them. That we're not to murder. But he says, be careful even in the context of what precedes murder, so watch your anger. He said we, couldn't, we shouldn't commit adultery. We should love our spouses. We should be faithful people. We should be known by our faithfulness. So we have to even watch the precursors to adultery. Be careful of your thoughts and your lust. Then he said we shouldn't steal and we shouldn't lie and we shouldn't covet rather than desiring what another has we should be happy for what they have even if we don't have it and we'd like to that's love you see to our neighbor and even in the midst of that we realize that we don't do that that we miss that that we sin and we realize then that all of our sin ultimately is against god because he is our creator he's the lord he's the one who defines and directs and thus all of our sin is against him and in his holiness, 
which exudes justice, we find ourselves to be, therefore, under his wrath. Now, when we think of wrath, we oftentimes apply it to wrath as we would, we would use it in the life of, a, of another person. And wrath in a human being oftentimes is expressed as some sort of irrational, uncontrolled anger. But that isn't the case with God. With God, his wrath isn't uncontrolled. It isn't irrational. His wrath is his perfectly rational, reasonable, just response to our sin. He simply can't sweep it under the rug, else he would be immoral. How could he overlook it? And so, he responds in wrath, which brings to us our just desserts, which is condemnation. Thus, the scripture can say in Ephesians, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's simply, you see, the truth. And thus, as we come to these sacrifices in Leviticus, excuse me, it's a strange time of year, you know, it gets cold in the morning, hot in the afternoon. I can be taught. Um, She'll be so proud of me for not throwing it on the floor. The, um, The question of Leviticus is then, how is it that God, who is holy, can live amongst an unholy people? And how is it that an unholy people can live in the presence of God. How is it that a holy God can live amongst an unholy people and not be defiled? And how is it that an unholy people can live in the presence of God and not be consumed? He tells us that. And he begins in this old covenant in the Old Testament. He begins to lay this out. And so we've considered various sacrifices. God says, if you want to come before me, you must bring an unblemished Something, because I'm holy. So I'll accept this unblemished animal in your place, but you have to kill it and make atonement for your sins, thus the burnt offering. And then he says, because I own everything, and because you're to delight in me, you must bring me a gift offering of grain. And so they bring this gift offering of grain to show that, that, that everything comes from God and that they're delighted in him. And after you've given a burnt offering and you understand that atonement means, needs to be made for your sin and something dies in your place, some innocent, if you will, some unblemished animal dies in your place, you realize what it is that you deserve. And then when God still blesses you with grain, you see what you get. And when we compare what we have with what we deserve, then we should be thankful. And then he comes and says, once atonement has been made, you see, then you can live in my presence. And so he says, I want you to bring an offering called a peace offering because this shows that you and I are at peace and also that you're at peace with those in the community who also believe. And now we come to this sin offering. And really it's, 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 it's at the guts of, of, of this whole system. Because it's our sin that's a problem. It's our sin that causes these offerings even to be instituted by God that we can live in his presence. Now as we worked our way through here, I didn't read all of it. You should read all of chapter 4. In chapter 5 through verse 12, or excuse me, through verse 13, 
And then pick up chapter 6, verse 24 at the end. I think I've listed that in the bulletin. So when you're, uh, this week you can read all of that. But what's interesting here in the first place is that the offering procedure differs depending on who sins. I, I read about the priest, the high priest probably, sins of the community, sins of a leader, and then sins of a, of a common person or an individual who's not a priest or a leader. And, and what we find, and you'll find as you read through here, is that when the high priest sins, he brings guilt upon all the people. Not just himself, but all the people. He represents them before God. And when there's a sin in the context of the community, the whole community is astray, the whole community sins, then we see also that that sin defiles everything. And what's so interesting here is that when the, the, the animal is brought for the priest in the community, it's a more expensive animal. It's a bull rather than a goat or a lamb or a bird. And in ancient Israel's economy, the bull was most expensive, most valuable. And so they would bring it because it, the defilement, the contamination of the community seemed to be greater. And not only that, when it was killed, the blood of the animal was not simply taken and put on the horns of the altar of sacrifice, but it was taken into this little rectangle area, the tabernacle proper, that had two rooms in it. One was the holy place and one was the most holy place. And separating the two was a veil. And so the blood would be taken all the way into there, right to the veil. Not inside, but right to the veil and sprinkled there. As if, as if the sin of the priest, which represented everybody, as if the sins of the community, which represented everybody, reached all the way so close into God. The blood of the sacrifice was brought that close so that atonement could be made for sin. But when just a leader or just an individual sin, then it would contaminate just the leader, just that individual. And so the sin offering was very much like the others, the blood brought to the altar. And then after all was said and done, the fat went to the Lord, burned up. Parts of the rest went to some of the priests. And then the rest that was left was taken outside the camp to a place that was considered clean. But there was a big fire and, and everything else would be burned up. And that was the sin. That was the sin offering. The second thing that's interesting to me here, and all a little scary, I must confess, is in verse 2 of chapter 4. Moses writes, quoting God, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally. Now, I have to say, I wish I could say that my sins are unintentional. I would feel much better about myself. The truth of the matter is, I normally am pretty good at the sin thing. So I, I pretty much know when I'm sinning that I'm sinning. And I pretty much know what's, what's really going on there. And so what is it that he means by sinning unintentionally? And what if you don't sin unintentionally? What if you sin intentionally? Is there no atonement for that sin? Because in every instance, it's always unintentional sin. So what's the, what's the deal? Well, turn to Numbers. In chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. And verse 30. Now this whole section, if you let your eyes sort of glance up to verse 27, you realize that Moses is speaking about the same kind of thing here as he was speaking in Leviticus, and that is unintentional sins. Verse 27 
first line is if one person sins unintentionally. But verse 30 now makes a contrast. Scripture says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now notice the contrast between an unintentional sin and what Moses refers to as the the high-handed sin. The high-handed sin is a sin of defiance. It's a sin that says, it sort of raises its fist to God and says, I really don't care about you. I'm just going to do what I want to do. It's that person who wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to sin all day. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I plan to do. Uh, I, I really don't have any intention of following God. That's really not on my radar. It's not something that I'm all that interested in. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, my life will be one of sin. Whether you do that consciously or unconsciously, that's this notion of a high-handed sin for which there is no sacrifice. And of course, there's never been an atoning sacrifice for that. There's never been an atoning sacrifice for someone who does not embrace God, who does not trust Him, who does not believe in Him, who does not confess his sin, who does not realize his guilt. Turn back to Leviticus in chapter 4 and catch what's going on in these unintentional sins. For instance, in verse 13, we read, If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt. You see, someone who commits an unintentional sin, it doesn't mean that you're just ignorant, that you don't know any better. But it means that when confronted, when you see your sin in the scripture, when someone comes to you and reveals that, a time comes when you realize your guilt. Notice verse 22 in Leviticus 4. When a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt. Notice verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt. Notice chapter 5 and verse 2. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt. At the end of chapter 3, you see that phrase again, and realizes his guilt. The end of verse 4, you see it again. And and he realizes his guilt, the beginning of verse 5. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed. That's where there is atonement. Because you see, these atoning sacrifices are not made for the insincere. These atoning sacrifices are not made for those who don't care. They're not made for those who desire to live a life apart from God. They're made for those who desire to follow after him. And thus, when they realize their guilt, they confess their sins, and sacrifice is made. And the question, of course, is, are my sins unintentional, or are they high-handed? Which person am I really? You know, we look back through history, we see King David, for instance, and we realize that, that he sinned grievously. I mean, he committed adultery. He lied about it. He had a man killed so that it would cover it. 
And yet, a day came when he was confronted with that sin and he realized his guilt. And he was forgiven. We even consider the Apostle Paul, a persecutor of Christians, when he murdered them. Likely to be the executioner when Stephen was killed. And yet, when he was confronted with his sin, he realized his guilt and confessed it and was forgiven. You see, the high-handed sin is the person who has no intention of following after God. And thus, this question for us, is this sin that we commit unintentional or defiant? Is it unintentional or is it high-handed? The Apostle Paul gives us some help here. Turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to begin reading with verse 9, but this is a passage of Scripture that uh, speaks to us about... Our own repentance. Stick your finger there because I, I want to show you here too in the New Testament something else before we get to this. And that is the great significance of this realizing our sin. We have a tendency to think, oh, maybe that's just an Old Testament thing. But keep your finger in Second Corinthians 7 and turn to Mark chapter 3. That's why God gave you ten fingers. You can mark a bunch of places in your Bible all at the same time. Mark chapter 3. Now I read this with a great deal of hesitancy because I know when I read this there's going to be a number of you out there who's going to think you've committed this sin and you'll email me this week. Well, if you're worried about it, you haven't. I'm not going to go into any great detail. I preached a sermon on this once way back when I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark so you look that up before, I, before you email me. Plus my email's down. <laughs> for which I'm thankful Mark, Mark chapter 3 verse 28 truly I say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes, blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they had said he has an unclean spirit so you see right there in the lips of Jesus there are some sins that there's no, for which there's no atonement. Because you see, they had come against Jesus and they had said, what you're doing is from Satan. A high-handed sin. Turn to, keep your finger in Second Corinthians, but turn to Hebrews in chapter 10. Verse 26. The author of Hebrews writes this, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of justice, of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So he's saying if we sin continuously, deliberately, after even we've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice for sins, there's no atonement for sins. And again, he doesn't mean by that is once you become a Christian, then you never sin. But he says, what's the course of your heart? What's the course of your life? Do you wake up in the morning with, with no regard about God at all? But you just anticipate that day you're just going to go on living the way that you desire to live. And there'll be no pangs of anything concerning God. Is that the course of your life? He says, even though you may be part of a church and you may uh, be very involved in the lives of the Christian community... But yet if you go on deliberately sinning, if it doesn't impact your life, if you don't wake up in the morning... 
with the sense I'm going to follow God today, but yet you have this sense that it really doesn't matter. There's no atonement. So, how do you know? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So, Paul had written to them about their lives, and it caused them some sorrow. Um, and he's happy about that, not because of their sorrow per se, but because of where this particular sorrow led them. And it led them into repentance. Now, that word repentance combines, if you will, this whole notion of realizing one's guilt and confessing one's sin. And the Old Testament nuance of repentance was that it meant that you would change direction. It was if to say you're going down a road and you realize, oh, I'm going in the wrong direction, and you would turn around. That's repentance. In my life, particularly, I have a horrible sense of direction. Anyone who's ever gone anywhere with me knows that. I know how to pe- get people to heaven, but, but I have a hard time getting around the block. Um, and so I, I spend most of my life going the wrong way and then turning around, which is my physical repentance, my spiritual repentance, is that I normally have to turn to my wife and say, you, you, you were right. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that's deliberate. I don't know. Maybe it is. Uh, but repentance to turn around. In the New Testament, the nuance is that one changes one's mind. Because of now what one knows, then you change. And so repentance in, in the New Testament is this sense of now I know who God is, now I know who I am. And I realize his holiness and my sin and my wrongness. And I realize not only what is I going in the wrong direction, I'm on the wrong road. And now I have to get on his road, if you will. And so repentance and repentance then comes in the whole context of belief. Because when I realize who God is and realize who I am, this change of direction then is to trust Him. So repentance and faith, you see, go together. So Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were uh, grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, simply being sorry about your sin doesn't really give you enough information as to whether or not you're repentant. Because you see, sometimes we're sad about our sin because we've gotten caught. And it feels really bad to get caught. We don't like the consequences of caught. And so we're sorry, but if that's it, that's not enough. You see, that's not the right kind of repentance. There are times when we're sorry about our sin because we realize it's hurt others and that grieves us as well it should, but still that isn't repentance. Sometimes we grieve over our being caught in our sin because now we realize it won't be as easy to engage in that sin anymore. And what we're grieving is the loss of being able to do this sin. That's not repentance. Repentance True repentance, true sorrow over sin comes and Paul lays it out like this, verse 11. He says, for, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Now let's just look at these very, very quickly just to help your heart. 
first is, he says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. He says, he says, real repentance is associated with an eagerness, an earnestness. You realize how serious this is. This is not a, a light thing, our sin. Denial is something that exists in all of us. Very often in the context of our, our own sin, we saw it in King David's situation, where it took a while for him to come to grips with the fact that he had committed these heinous sins. It took Nathan the prophet to come to him and tell him a little story to, to spark his own heart and then to reveal to him the situation that was before him, that it was really his sin. And we can live in that. T.S. Eliot, I believe, once said, humankind cannot stand much reality. And that's true. We, we would rather live in a fantasy. We would rather escape the truth. So we must be very careful. But sin is a very significant thing. It isn't something to just sort of be laughed at in the context of our own life. So serious it was that Jesus said, listen, if your hand offends you, figuratively speaking, cut it off. If your eye offends you that has caused you to sin, figuratively speaking, pluck it out. If he was speaking literally, we'd be a bunch of one-handed, one-eyed Christians. But he says, figuratively speaking, that is, it's so serious. Is that serious? It's as serious as, 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 as the consideration of cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. Because he says, it's better to enter into glory, to enter into heaven maimed, than it is to go to hell with your full body. That's how significant this is. He says, what? Earnestness. Then he goes on to say, what eagerness to clear yourselves. And by that he doesn't mean to, 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 to explain how it is that you, you, you did this sin, but really it wasn't your fault. He doesn't mean that. He says, eagerness to clear yourself. He says, you should, you should do all that you possibly can do in order to separate yourself from the identity with this sin. Oh, you did it and you admitted it. But now you have this great earnestness to separate yourself from that sin. And so if it's the sin of internet pornography, you'll do whatever it is that you can in order to separate yourself from that. So that isn't what you're known for. If it's cheating, if it's lying, if it's gossiping, you'll set up whatever conditions are necessary in order to separate yourself from that sin so that you're no longer known for that. Um, what indignation you should have a great sense of anger, if you will, against this sin. What fear. It brings with you an understanding that, that this sin is not your friend, but rather it's out to kill you. I mean, consider these things as they work down the context of your life. I mean, what would happen if your anger played itself out to its fullness? Where would you be? If gossip played out itself out to its fullness? If your lust played itself out to its fullness? Where would you be? In fact, an exercise I often take men through who come into my office who are struggling with lust. I say, all right, take that lustful fantasy, play it out to its end, assume that all takes place, now sit down and tell your children. You see, sin isn't out to give us a good time. Sin's out to destroy us. And so anyone who's involved, all of us who sin, should have a sense of earnestness to separate ourselves from this, see the seriousness of this, hate it, and also fear it, to realize where it's going to go. Then he says, what, what longing that is to be rid of this, what zeal to do whatever you can to put this aside, what punishment that is to say, you're willing to take whatever it takes. Whether that means make, making restitution to someone you've hurt. 
whatever it means, in order to rid yourself of this. And he says, at every point you've proved yourself innocent in this matter. That is, not innocent in the matter because you've already, you've already admitted doing it. But now you see no one would ever accuse you again. Because you've so separated yourself from it. That's real repentance. That's, that's a real understanding of, of, of the seriousness of, of our sin. That's this whole notion of an unintentional sin. That is, when confronted, you realize your guilt, you confess your sin, you desire to turn from it in a serious, serious, serious way. Not a high-handed sin. And we have to be careful not to work ourselves into what I call a repentance catch-22. We have to be careful not to grow to cherish and to prize our sin. Because the more we cherish it and the more we prize it, the harder it is to turn from. Because after a while it takes a grip over us. And repentance then is a violent act in the nature of our own hearts. We have to be careful not to get into the situation of saying, I know this is a sin, but God will forgive me. (laughs) Because then, you see, we begin to ask the question, what does repentance mean after you've sinned in such a situation? If you're thinking, well, I could cheat on this test because God will forgive me. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is, will you repent and what will that mean? Because after you cheat on a test and you come to God for forgiveness and he says, repent of it, doesn't repentance include going back to your professor and saying, I cheated on this test? And if it does, then why cheat? I've had people sit in my office and say, I know this divorce isn't really of God, and I I know I shouldn't divorce, but but God will forgive me. And I say, well, that's not the issue. The issue is, what would repentance mean in the context of that? I mean, after you divorce, and then you go to God for forgiveness, and he says, I want you to repent of the sin. What does that mean? Wouldn't it mean going back to your former spouse and saying, we shouldn't have gotten divorced? Sorry. So why do it in the first place? If you're going to gossip, And you say, I know this is a sin, but this is so juicy, I just got to get it out. And God will forgive me. But then after you get it out and you go to God to ask for forgiveness, won't he say you need to repent of this sin of gossip? And doesn't that mean then going to the person you've gossiped about and asking their forgiveness? And so why do it in the first place? Doesn't that take a bit of the thrill out of it? But we can often get ourselves into this repentance catch-22 and then we don't know what to do because the pain of honest repentance may, be, may actually betray our own hearts. Now the quintessential sin offering in ancient Israel took place on a particular day of the year. It was called the Day of Atonement. It was a sin offering. And on that particular day, the high priest, you can read about this in Leviticus 16, I don't have time to do it now. But the high priest would cleanse himself and he would put on his special day of atonement suit, which would be different than his other priestly garments. And he would then take two goats unblemished, cast lots for one, and this one he would take and he would kill it. And on this particular day, he wouldn't take the blood and just sprinkle on the altar of sacrifice. And he wouldn't take it just to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. But on this particular day, and only on this particular day, would he take it into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant was a jar of manna, the rod of Aaron, 
and the tablets, the Ten Commandments. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a golden seat called the Seat of Mercy or the Seat of Propitiation. And he would take that blood then from that goat and he would sprinkle it there. The only time he could get in that place, the only time, and only he, only the high priest, and he would sprinkle it on this mercy seat, on the seat of propitiation, and he would come out. And if he would come out alive, then the people would know that the blood had been sprinkled in the very presence of God, the very dwelling of God, right there in the Holy of Holies. And their sins had been atoned for. Now the big word for that, of course, is the word propitiation. You should know that word. So write the word propitiation on your mind. Uh, you can write it on your paper that you're taking notes with. That's great, but write it on the blackboard that's on your mind. Everybody should have a blackboard in their mind. Watch yourself write the word propitiation, then put a little dash. Now, what does that mean? You should know this. Propitiation means that the wrath of God is satisfied. That there's no longer a case against you. And to illustrate that was the second goat. The high priest would come out. Uh, and he would take this second goat and he would take both hands, put them on the head of this goat as they were to do in the context of sin offerings. And he would take his hands and press it upon this goat's head and he would confess the sins of the people upon this goat. And then this goat would be taken out into the wilderness. And so right before your very eyes, you would see your sins leave. Never to come back again. Goats can never find their way home. Never again. And your sins are gone. And if somebody says, where are your sins? You went, they just left. So your sins atoned for the wrath of God, extinguished, exhausted, satisfied, assuaged by the blood of the first goat, second goat, one offering together, second goat to leave. And the scripture uses language like, our sins then are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And you say, how far is that? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's far. We don't know any farther than that. The scripture says that he will blot out our transgressions and he will remember our sins no more. Now, not remembering, as we know, is different than forgetting. God isn't stupid. He doesn't forget, forget. He, he, he's God. But what he does then is something even more miraculous and even more loving and more merciful, he chooses not to remember. Now, when the scripture uses that word remember about God, it's almost a technical word. If you read through the Old Testament especially, you'll find little phrases like, God remembered his covenants, or God remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean he had forgotten them and then, oh, yeah. It means that at that moment in time, when he begins to remember, he's going to act. So, if God says, I will not remember, or I will remember them no more, he's saying, I'm choosing not to act. And so when he says he'll remember our sins no more, he's saying, your sins are gone. I'm not going to remember, I'm not going to act upon your sinfulness. I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. And that's what an atoning sacrifice really does. Quickly. Hebrews and chapter 9. I know it's hot in here. Just chill out. I won't read as much as I could. So this week, read Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, 
and the end of Hebrews chapter 13. Did you get that? Let me just read a little bit of Hebrews in chapter 9, beginning with verse 11. The first ten verses deal with the earthly tabernacle that we've just read about in Leviticus. Verse 11. But, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is tabernacle, not made with, with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of the heifers sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What does that mean? It means that if you can picture the high priest going into this most holy place to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, then also understand that Jesus took his own blood, not there to that little box, but to the sanctuary in heaven. And when he rose again, when he came out, he said, your sins are as far as the east is from the west. They've been blotted out. My Father will remember them no it'd be great to read this whole thing but chapter 13 and verse 10 we have an altar from which those who serve the tents have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin sins are burned outside the camp. See, same thing. Sin offering. Remember what happened to the carcass and all that of the, of the sin offering was taken outside the camp and burned. So now we're speaking of Jesus. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. That's where he was killed. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruits of lips that acknowledge his name, you see. For whom has Jesus come? That's the question. For whom has Jesus come? Are you simply... Uh, did he come just for these unintentional sins? For all sins, what? And again, as we read in the book of Hebrews earlier, in chapter 10, if one deliberately sins, but with the notion of the atonement of Christ, for who is it? It's for those who identify with him. Just in the same way on that day of atonement, the only way that the atoning sacrifice of that day is effective in the life of a person or individual is when he identifies with what the priest is doing. When he identifies with his sins being confessed over that goat. And when he identifies